Today in Science from Wired. This episode is brought to you by ShipStation. You know, some things take a lot of work, like sending little robots to far off distant planets. And just as that's challenging, so too is running a successful e-commerce business, especially when there's so much to do. So I want to introduce you all to ShipStation. Now, I love using ShipStation because of its easy-to-use dashboard, which makes managing orders and printing labels a breeze and super smooth. Oh, and the customer service is just out of this world. It's exactly what you need to help grow your business. Sign up for your free 60-day trial at ShipStation.com slash technews. That's ShipStation.com slash technews. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Today in Science, from Wired. A year ago, I asked, how bad could COVID get? Now we know. No one was calling it a pandemic yet, at least publicly. Then came more troubling evidence about transmission as the U.S. ignored warning signs by Megan Molteni. About this time last year, COVID-19, this disease that has so far killed more than 400,000 Americans and infected 25 million more, still seemed like someone else's problem. On the last day of 2019, China's government had confirmed that dozens of patients in the city of Wuhan were being treated for this mysterious pneumonia-like illness. Then, 10 days later, the researchers working with health authorities there published the genome of the virus that was making people sick. That was the first story I wrote for Wired about the coronavirus that's now known as SARS-CoV-2. And during the first days of 2020, it was a scientific accomplishment to sequence the virus so quickly. And that, combined with this commitment to open data sharing, was heralded as a victory for public health. See, with that digital string of genetic code, researchers around the world could start making tests to detect the virus just in case it showed up on their country's shores. But public health officials in the Western Hemisphere didn't really appear all that worried about this possibility. A week went by, case counts in China shot up dramatically, And the virus started to show up in new places. First it was Japan, then Thailand, then South Korea, and then the United States. The World Health Organization scheduled a meeting to decide whether or not the outbreak constituted an international public health emergency. One year ago today, on January 22, 2020, I wrote another story asking public health experts to level with me on one question. Just how bad could this thing get? No one was using the P-word yet, at least not publicly. I mean, scientists knew that pandemics were a possibility, like the 2009 H1N1 swine flu, but it had been more than a century since the emergence of a virus that could infect a third of the world's population and kill millions of people. 
On January 21, 2020, I spoke to Michael Olsterholm, who's the director of the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy at the University of Minnesota. And at that time, he told me that coronaviruses just don't have pandemic potential. He thought that only influenza can really go global. And that's what he definitely believed during these early days of the Wuhan outbreak. But by the time I spoke with him, he was starting to have his doubts, and he just started telling his colleagues at SIDRAP otherwise. See, he wrote in an email to the center's leadership team the night before our interview, It is clear now that we will see global transmission of the virus in the next week to 10 days. In short, I'm certain this will be our next pandemic. I spoke to him again this week, and he said he had felt compelled to write that email because it went against what he'd been telling his team for the first half of January. He said, My initial concern had been alleviated quite a bit when we realized it was a coronavirus and not influenza. After this new pathogen was identified at first, he assumed it would just act like other coronaviruses he'd worked on, like SARS and MERS. And if you squish it early on with testing and contact tracing and isolating people who've been exposed, it should just go away. He recalled to me that in 2003, SARS had spread outside of China, but not widely. Like when it arrived in Toronto, the virus had mostly spread among people in hospitals, and those who died had been healthcare workers. So it hadn't passed through the general population. But then he started to hear stories from collaborators in Wuhan about families there who had all contracted the virus, even though they hadn't had contact with anyone who was visibly sick. Olsterholm says he realized it must be spreading before people developed symptoms. That would be a game changer. He said, over a 10-day period, I went through this whole whiplash of it's a coronavirus, it's okay mindset, to this is a very different kind of coronavirus this one's going to go. So now he had his conviction, but at this point he had no proof. And nobody wants to be that catastrophist. And that's why he demurred early last year when I asked him if this coronavirus was going to be the big one. And he said to me this week, publicly, I had to be very careful about saying it was going to be a pandemic if I wasn't prepared to back that up. At this point, I was trying to make certain I had it right. I didn't say it was going to be a pandemic, but everything in my head said it was going to be a pandemic. And he only got more sure the next day, because the Chinese government quarantined the entire 11 million person city of Wuhan. A few days after that, the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention announced that the outbreak had entered a new phase in the U.S. The virus wasn't just showing up in travelers. It was spreading between people in a community. Wired actually broke the news that that community was Solano County in Northern California. And meanwhile, Italy was recording dozens of new infections every day. Things were playing out as Ulsterholm feared. He says he started calling his contacts at the CDC and the Department of Health and Human Services, where he'd been an advisor on public health and bioterrorism in the early 2000s. He says, I got a lot of pushback from people there who wouldn't believe it. So, on February 24, 2020, he co-authored an op-ed in the New York Times. He warned that what had happened in Wuhan was likely to play out elsewhere, even in the U.S. 
and he urged governments to conduct COVID-19 preparedness drills. He pointed to places like Hong Kong as models that others could follow, the people that were being given surgical masks. And the same in Singapore, which was beefing up its disease surveillance and also warning people to avoid large gatherings. These were the places that health officials had realized that if people were asking whether or not a disease is going to become a pandemic, you kind of have to just start acting like the answer is yes. Osterholm wrote, Pandemic isn't just a technical public health term. It also is, or should be, a rallying cry. But in the U.S., it was more of a rallying whimper. The federal government's coronavirus response limped and stuttered from the beginning, first with testing, then with getting adequate protective equipment for healthcare workers. I mean, states fought each other over supplies. Federal officials, and that includes former President Donald Trump, downplayed the danger. Parts of the U.S. locked down, but others didn't, and there was no real plan for reopening. And then things got political. And all the while, the virus just spread. It was a catastrophic failure, says Larry Gostin. Larry's the director of the O'Neill Institute for National and Global Health Law at Georgetown University. And he says it's a failure driven in large part by pandemic denial. Larry says we should have jumped on it fast and hard and never let go, like so many other countries did successfully. But we refused to face the facts that were right in front of us. The reality was right there on television what happened in Wuhan, and then this huge wave going across the ocean to Europe. We just didn't pay attention. All the things Gostin says the U.S. should have done a year ago, like massively ramping up testing capacity and higher scores of contact tracers and help people isolate themselves if they'd been exposed, those are exactly the things the Joe Biden-Kamala Harris administration proposed this week. The only thing that's different is that now there are vaccines. Gostin says the rest of the playbook is the same. If we'd had that availability even as early as March, we could have literally avoided hundreds of thousands of deaths. Anne Ramoyne is a UCLA epidemiologist who studies emerging diseases in the Democratic Republic of Congo. And for years, she's pushed for more investment in a global surveillance system to pick up pathogens with pandemic potential before they have the opportunity to spread globally. But she says finding the money and political will has been challenging. That kind of threat has felt too far removed, too hypothetical. And says hopefully we understand at this point that it isn't hypothetical how many lives are at stake. You see, more Americans have died in this pandemic than during World War II. It's much more devastating than a war, Anne says. That's why she's encouraged to see that one of President Biden's first executive orders was to rejoin the WHO, from which Trump began withdrawing the U.S. in mid-2020. Now, the health authority has taken some heat for being too deferential to China in the early days of the outbreak, especially as that government was censoring the flow of information out of Wuhan. But the U.S.'s most urgent health and security problems are truly world problems, which can't be solved by sealing the borders and hoping for the best. It's better to be part of an organization with eyes and ears all around the globe. Anne says, I think the lesson to be learned from all this is that an infection anywhere is an infection everywhere, especially if it's a respiratory virus. And it's true. Anne acknowledges it, that this respiratory virus, SARS-CoV-2, 
has evolved an insidious new trick. It replicates so fast that people are most contagious days before they even develop symptoms, if they develop symptoms at all. And it took scientists way too long to notice that and to update their priors on how coronaviruses operate. But adding to that problem, Anne says, was that detailed epidemiological data was slow to arrive in those early days. I mean, case numbers and death rates can help give an outbreak shape, but without information about where and how people got infected, it's impossible to know how that shape will move and change. In the DRC, Anne's used to having imperfect data, to trying to assemble the puzzle of how a pathogen works with just a few pieces. But outside of sub-Saharan Africa, that's not how scientists are used to doing things. And without good information, it's way easier to fall into that faulty absence of evidence being evidence of absence trap, where you start to mistakenly downplay the risks. Anne says the only way to combat that is to have a real, substantive, and strong investment in viral surveillance and mechanisms to share that information in the same way you would for any other issue of national or global security. Okay, so as part of that same executive order I talked about a minute ago, Biden's administration called for establishing an interagency national center for epidemic forecasting and outbreak analytics. And their job will be to modernize global early warning systems for emerging biological threats. Anne says that's good, but the trick will be keeping those systems running and well-funded even in biological peacetimes, because that's how to not miss the signal the next time. And with the way things are headed, Anne says it's unlikely we'll have to wait another 100 years for another devastating pandemic to come knocking on our door. Like what you learned? Subscribe everywhere you listen to podcasts and get more science news at wired.com science. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.